Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing taking a clinical history, clinical reasoning, and exploring the symptom. As ever, all information is, t- is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals, NHS Trust, other trust guidelines may vary, all views and opinions are the speaker's own. Uh, hello, welcome back to Take Orally, and uh, welcoming for her pod debut, uh, Lucy Harris. Hello, Lucy. Hi, yeah. ACP and teaching fellow. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, and for this podcast, this is uh, to go along with our ACP introductory lectures for our trainee ACPs. Although I think this lecture can work well for anybody, uh, a junior medical student, for example, who's starting yeah. to take histories. Um, we're going to first have a look about taking a clinical history and the format of that and, and the ways that that can be a bit, a little bit unusual compared to how a, a, an ACP might have been doing when they were a nurse. Absolutely. Um, it's a big jump, a big leap, um, some might say, jumping from um, being the traditional nursing role and then taking on um, an advanced clinical practitioner role um, and then having to do all of the, um, the aspects of that in, ter- in terms of clinical history taking um, uh, and supporting your differential diagnoses using that. Mm-hmm. So from your own practice, when you remember when you started your first year of ACP, how different did it feel to when you were a nurse triaging patients and, and taking history from patients then? What, what's the main difference, do you think? Um, so I think obviously there was um, some uh, some background of experience which you built upon, but very much that was built upon pattern recognition and and knowing what you were doing from a day-to-day basis because you'd spent so many years doing it um, and I think there was an element of breaking all of that down and away, <laughs> um, stripping it bare to then build it back up again using using a structured format and a systematic way of taking a history from a patient which yeah. was concise but also um, complete as yeah. well. Another thing I think you were talking about as we were setting up was about the ownership of the information that you take as um, when you're an ACP trainee versus when you're a nurse. Uh, absolutely. So moving away from the um, from the um, nursing staff in the past uh, um, of pass, I'm just passing it on or just to let you know. Yeah. Um, and um, and being more specific about the information that you're actually um, obtaining from patients um, and taking ownership of that to then move on um, and form the rest of your consultation but not only that your then ongoing examination and, and any investigations that you might want to do mm-hmm. um, it's very much um, your information with your consultation with the patient mm-hmm. um, so the onus is on you mm-hmm. making sure that you're taking the right the right uh, information from the patient sure uh, and the history is still very important isn't it in, in making a diagnosis so first first thought of call when you when you look at the consultation process um, is essentially establishing um, introducing yourself to the patient because obviously you don't get far unless you, unless you start with that so so greeting the patient is is in any way that you would have done previously, I think as nursing, actually, nursing teams were very good at patient interaction, so that's something that we find relatively easy. Yeah. Um, and also establishing why the patient is there, but then moving on swiftly to the history of, of, of why the patient is there. Um, and that is probably, if not the most important aspect of a consultation. Um, there's been quite a bit of research in the past uh, which say that 80% of, um, of differentials can actually be made from the history, and you're really then using the examination and ongoing investigation to support what you already know really. Good. Okay. 
and uh, yeah, certain conditions as well. If you've got abdo pain that goes through to the back in an older person, you're going to think AAA, even if your examination is all right, isn't it? So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The key is in the history. So, shall we talk a bit about moving from the novice to the expert in, in how we take our history? So, um, absolutely. So, from, from when I was training as an ACP, um, I did very much feel like everything had been broken down from what I knew um, was almost dissolving in front of me um, before then building back up again. And I very much was um, an experienced and maybe an expert nurse in some respects, but then moving straight back to a novice role in terms of being an ACP. Um, so exploring um, the presenting complaint in detail was very new to me um, <laughs> and something that uh, I had to work very hard um, and to get lots of practice yeah. at actually, um, it's just redoing it over and over again. Because um, then with confidence of just doing the basic presenta- uh, presenting complaints and being able to do that in detail, then you can add on to that and do things like the cardinal symptoms mm-hmm. of presenting complaints, for instance, respiratory um, cardinal symptoms or card- uh, cardiac um, cardinal symptoms. But then also um, thinking about the differentials that might relate to those particular symptoms and then um, exploring particular risk factors. And by the time you're getting to the point of doing those things, then you're looking more of an expert within your, within your um, advancement practice field. Um, all alongside taking obviously the patient's ideas, concerns and expectations into mind um, so that you're doing a holistic approach to care. Mm. And, and all the way along that is, is appreciating that your, the risk factors and certain conditions that you may be thinking about are going to change depending on your patient's demographics. Yeah, absolutely. So they will then, with a list of differentials in front of you, which can be endless really, um, that you're moving those up and down in a, in a tiered fashion um, mm. on the information that you're then drawing from your patient and allowing them to sort of give to you. Um, in terms of um, the demographic side of things, we are living uh, living longer. Um, life expectancy is increasing year by year, um, and we are living with conditions that would have killed us 30 years ago. Um, so it's bearing that in mind um, in terms of sort of likelihood and prevalence of diseases mm. um, as we are growing older, mm. um, and the complexities of managing those patients in terms of their medicines and things like that as well. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and I suppose, you know, we work in A&E, sometimes you, you can't take the perfect history, you have to sort of can only take little snippets, your patient's in a lot of pain and not willing to talk until you've given analgesia and things so, like yeah, that. So yeah, I think yeah. it goes for, for, from an ED background, but um, yeah. to be honest, any, any clinical background, uh, whether you work in community, if you work in prisons, if you work in, um, on the wards within the hospital, um, if a patient's unwell and looks unwell in front of you, then um, then spending time asking them, you know, how many cigarettes do you smoke or how many drinks do you have um, isn't going to be appropriate. It's recognising when you need to move to a different approach, which is an A to E assessment of the patient. So I guess if you're looking at your patient, you do your initial assessment of the patient and they don't look well, then you're not going to then ask them who lives with them at home, do they have any cats or dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so shall we uh, now have a 
move on to the history then. So uh, saying exactly, you know, what a history is, and then the format of the, the classical, uh, the medical, the classical medical history. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is something that doesn't really change, um, no. uh, and hasn't changed for many, many years. Um, so people may critique it, but it is what it is, and it is actually perfect <laughs> the way it is. Um, so um, in terms of moving from, say, you taking the presenting plate from the patient, um, and then really um, asking them and allowing them to talk about the history of uh, presenting complaints. Um, I will say when you do take the presenting complaint, that is the patient's own words. Um, there is no, there's no putting, oh, they've got left-sided chest pain or they've got cardiac sounding chest pain because the patient doesn't say I've got cardiac sounding chest pain they say I've got pain on the left side of my chest or um, I've got sh uh, sharp pain in the middle of my chest so it's documenting when that is but also within that putting when that pain started um, so you've got a context of time um, so one day ago or two days ago um, yeah and moving on to, to um, allow them to have a dialogue to tell you the background of that presenting complaint um, and the key to that is using sort of open questions um, and allowing them to talk or as they're saying to you um, well I had some pain in my chest oh you had some pains in your chest tell me about the pains in your chest <laughs> um, and leaving it very open so you don't close down close down that dialogue because the information they give you is enormous if you allow them time to do it mm. Um, and then you're moving swiftly on to discuss um, uh, whether they're allergic to anything, obviously vital if you're going to be prescribing any medications, um, what medications they would maybe on, the previous medical history, um, their social history, so who they live with at home, how they manage home carers, how they get around, um, do they get to the shops okay on their own, how do they feed themselves, all of those things within the social history, um, smoking, um, do they drink, do they take recreational drugs, um, um, should be included within that. And then also asking about their family history. Um, are there any relevant family uh, history? Um, uh, so for instance, any cardiac history within the family? Um, any renal problems, any diabetes? Um, any respiratory issues? Um, and then right at the end is the AG system review. And I think it's the, the one that probably frightens everybody really, because you don't want to miss something in your system review. And it's no. Fast. Yeah, it's not like everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yes, uh, that's that's essentially the format that your your history should take, um, and to be complete, um, you need to complete all of those all of those sections. Brilliant. And um, as we we'll sort of find out as, as we go through um, these podcasts, you can. Your, the questions that you might ask, certain red flag symptoms that you might ask depend on the presenting complaint or also the system that, that, that you're worried about. Yeah, absolutely. And you try to, I think that, that also goes from sort of the novice moving through mm -hmm. to the expert that you then to sort of gauge how you're um, questioning the patient and, and mm -hmm. the, the, the specific red flags that you'd be looking for um, associated with your differentials. So the presenting complaint, as you always said, that's in your patient's own words and, and that's really their headline, isn't it? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, don't try and steal it from them. It is their headline indeed. Um, so don't try to fit a round peg through a square hole, as it were. Because um, when you start putting words into the patient's mouth, you're moving further away from the differential you should be aiming for. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's really imperative that you don't, you don't do that. Um, uh, and the onset was obviously very important. Mm. Um, and making making sure you're clear on when that onset was. Yeah. Yeah. So once we've got our symptom from our patient, uh, which we'll have a moment to talk about that and actually even what a symptom is. 
Mm. Um, absolutely. So sort of trying to recognise really the difference between symptoms and signs. And it's something that um, I was, that's drilled into me uh, as a ACP student. Um, uh, and not to confuse the two um, by a, a certain consultant. <laughs> um, um, so saying so I have leg swelling is a symptom. Um, when you find that the patient has edema to the legs and you're looking at the sign. Um, so uh, to be very clear on that when you're documenting. Um, the patient's history. Um, so uh, in terms of analysing those particular symptoms, um, a useful tool that we use is something called Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it was initially designed to assess people who are in pain and, and um, look at their, their pain from a history perspective. However, we can tweak it slightly so we can use it for other symptoms to be able to get a, a clear picture of, of what the patient's been experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what does uh, Socrates stand for then? So uh, Socrates, um, <laughs> so looking at um, the site, onset, character, radiation, any associations, um, time or course or pattern if you like, um, periodicity of the pain, if there's any exacerbating or relieving factors um, and severity on how bad the pain is. Something we're actually very bad at doing in healthcare actually is assessing people's severity of pain. Um, So uh, a clear structure there. Okay. And um, so being careful, of course, that, you know, if you ask a patient, where does the pain radiate, they may not understand what you're saying. So so does the pain move anywhere? Absolutely. What type of pain is it rather than what's the pain's character? I think when I'm with students, they use this very formalised language and patients kind of look at them as if to go, what you want about? Mm. Yeah, so trying to make it, it... your history should really, really feel like a conversation with somebody that you've just met um, and a conversation that's really open. Um, so yeah, using the right terminology because um, my, my parents grew up with me doing nursing but still wouldn't understand a lot of the terminology that I would use on a day-to-day basis. So I, even with them, I have to, have to sort of bring it down to layman terms. So yeah, you're right in the sense of making sure that you don't, um, don't make it too clinical <laughs> in terms of trying to get the information. Cool. Um, so if we're thinking then about assessing our patient's pain, that's obviously quite can be a subjective thing. Mm. Um, and you know, sometimes you can have patients being very stoical uh, and, and not wanting to cause a fuss, for example. Um, what ways have we got to sort of this for, us, for our patient to sort of quantify their pain? Um, so I think traditionally uh, people have used the zero to ten, um, so zero being no pain at all and ten being the worst pain that you've ever had. Um, uh, it's, it's sometimes quite difficult for patients to, to get their heads around a naught to ten scale. So um, more so now we're using sort of a naught to three, um, so no pain or mild pain for one, um, moderate pain for two and severe pain for three. Um, if you've got patients who have cognitive impairment or learning disability, then you can use visual charts to try and assess their pain um, mm. with sort of smiling faces or sad faces and all mm. the ones in between. Um, if, I mean, if you're going to be taking this information, you really need to be documenting it down, what the patient's pain was before, and you should be documenting that you're giving them some analgesia and what their pain is afterwards. So if you mess, reassess um, <laughs> kind of theory. Um, but essentially, don't tease analgesias because um, in healthcare, it's one of the biggest complaints that we get um, is that we don't provide adequate analgesia for our patients. If they tell you they're in pain, then that could be your first priority. If there's one thing we can fix, it's pain, even if we don't know the underlying differential at that time. Mm. 
And and what about where, for whatever reason, our patient can't give much of a history? Say they have dementia, they have learning difficulties, they may be you know, a reduced uh, level of consciousness. This is where we need to take a history from someone else, what we call a collateral history. Mm. Who can we take this from? So it's being smart, really, isn't it? And, and thinking about the people around around that particular patient that can help you. Um, so that may be relatives or parents um, who might have attended with them to a particular appointment. Um, or you might be looking at carers from the care home. You might have to call a care home um, and speak to them about the patient, people that know the patient well. Um, I think one of the things and frustrations that sometimes we can get within healthcare is that the patient turns up with a carer who doesn't actually know them yeah. um, or only works night shifts so who's never really met them before because they were in bed asleep normally um, so it's picking the right person to ask the information from ambulance crew for instance I mean they've got a wealth of, of knowledge and documentation on that patient they spent a long time with them um, or the if it's somebody who's just been brought into hospital so the public that were around at the time and saw whatever happened to them um, the police obviously are very helpful but last and not least is GP um, can provide you with a wealth of information on what's been going on with that patient before. So, um, yeah, I would um, always use your collateral history where, where possible if you're not able to get a clear history from the patient in front of you. Brilliant. Okay, um, and so now I think we've, we've, we're taking a history and, and, and I think this is the bit that, you know, first-year medical students will take a history from a patient, training ACPs will take a history from a patient and they will give you this information and then look at you and moving on from that stage where you've just taken information and regurgitating it is to actually the point of where we start being an, an active listener and start to look at what we've got mm. and an important part of that are red flags and, and we talk about this a lot red flag symptoms red flag history um, what's exactly is a red flag um. So, well, I guess if you think about it within Formula One, it's a, it's a red flag saying things are not safe. <laughs> so um, so uh, conditions are unsafe. Um, clinical practice are red flags a warning or an indicator that something more concerning could be going on with your patient. It increases the possibility um, for life or limb-threatening conditions um, or some potential for something more serious to occur. Um, so depending on sort of your background role, culture experience, where you work, um, these all influence your considerations for red flags. Um, for example, someone in primary care who presents, uh, has a patient that presents with weight loss, night sweats, uh, a chronic cough, um, could indicate cancer, um, whereas in ED we look for um, immediate threats to the patient. Um, so, um, for instance, the middle-aged man who attends with back pain that radiates to his groin, we're instantly thinking AAA. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I guess it's, 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 very, it's very much dependent on the workplace that you're in and there's considerations for people to, to be aware of that as well. Yeah, so I think when, whenever I've done a a course in, with uh, community practitioners and I've mentioned say hemoptysis coughing up blood and I'm thinking I think PE uh, as a because mm. like you said an immediate life threatening thing um, they tend to say oh cancer because mm. they obviously have that different mindset yeah, uh, headache in A&E subarach could it be a tumour yeah. in general practice think migraine yeah. it, cluster depend, headaches cluster migraine, headaches yeah. migraines etc and it, it depends on, on your on your patient population yeah, um, and I guess with that in mind, um, 
you need to be careful with your own biases mm. in which case as well so yeah. I'm very much from an emergency medical background and if I was to be placed in a primary care background I would think everyone was dying <laughs> um, and I would have a bias to think that everybody needed to come to hospital potentially um, or everybody need, needed investigations um, which potentially they wouldn't need within a primary care setting um, and that's my own bias because of my own experience yeah. um, so it leads nicely onto that really um, so trying to remember to spot the, the hidden danger signs but not not to forget that you're in your own environment and you've got biases that will stop you from looking for those so if you're not looking for them you won't find them yeah um, um, it's just a bit like where's Wally a bit like where's Wally <laughs> absolutely <laughs> or you know, Waldo well, yeah, depending Waldo. on where you're from in the world if you're, if you're in the US having a listen to this um, okay, so and when we're, we're asking through the, the past medical history as well, it's very important to remember surgery as well, mm. when and where things were done and, and who diagnosed things. Yeah, absolutely. So I think patients are very quick actually on, on the whole. Um, when you ask them if they have any medical problems, I mean some say they have nothing at all and then pull out a bag of medications for you. Yeah, <laughs> That's you a surprise. On, are you on any medication? No. no. Uh, they bring out the, the, the insulin. Absolutely. Oh, apart from this every day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it's important to ask a full medical history and actually that adds weight to what your differentials you have in your mind at that stage because yeah. you would have already started to formulate your list of differentials for that yeah. patient from what they've already told you. For instance, if they presented with chest pain and then they then tell you actually they do suffer with angina or they've had a previous cabbage it increases your your um suspicion of there being something more cardiac that's right yeah. chest pain then for instance somebody who presents with no medical history at all yeah um so asking a very clear medical history and also dates and times as you said um but not to forget things like surgeries because they often forget to tell you about those and it's not then until you're examining them and you find a big scar down the middle of their tummy or their chest <laughs> that they then say well actually i had this done two years ago i don't um, have a gallbladder anymore yeah. no, i don't have an appendix absolutely and I, I, I do i'm not not wanting to to um, spread too much cynicism, but I also think it's important to question the past medical sometimes. Mm. So the you know it's very common that an elderly person will say to me, "Oh, I was diagnosed with asthma last year," and you go, "Really?" And they're a smoker, ex minor, etc. And you think, "Well, mm. hang on, is it more likely you have COPD?" You know, people don't develop asthma later on in life and so, so I think it's sometimes important to have that that yeah. sort of, of um, uh, scepticism for want of a better word in the back the of the mind. The patient's knowledge of their medical history is only as good as the person that told them yeah. it. Um, so it is really important um, when you think about patients presenting with headaches and they say that they suffer with migraines, well who diagnosed with your migraines yeah. and how long ago was that and how often yeah. did you get them? So it's really important to have a look at their previous medical problems um, yeah. from a perspective of well, is this formally diagnosed? Is yeah. this a diagnosis that you've given yeah. yourself? Um, and I find that if it's been before that, you know, this, I have angina, this is exactly like my angina. I have migraines, this is exactly like my migraines, or if there is any difference. Mm. I think that's really important. It's also the stage to really, the medical history is the stage to put out the, the, um, the more serious things that can yeah. lead to um, increased risk of, of other diseases or um, uh, presenting complaints. Yeah. So, uh, so for instance, things like diabetes, HIV, 
dementia, um, previous surgeries we've already mentioned, pregnancy, heart disease, um, cancers, um, COPD, or anybody who um, has a potential for things like aneurysms. So, uh, for instance, someone presenting with polycystic kidney disease as a previous medical issue would have been at increased risk of um, uh, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. So, um, so being aware of how those could impact on their present, uh, presenting complaint that particular day. Mm, brilliant. And um, so then moving on to the medications, and, and again, like I said, um, you know, some patients who are, I never take anything and they find they're on insulin. Mm -hmm. Very often patients can think, oh, medicine is something I take when I'm poorly. They don't think it's the thing they take every day to stop themselves being poorly. Or that their blood sugar pressure is fine now because they've been on their antihypertensives yeah. for years, yeah. so that's not really a problem. Yeah. Um, is, is also one of the common ones I tend to come across. Um, so really important to get a clear medical history of when they were started on things and who started them on the medications. Yeah. And if they, some of these uh, medications are over the counter, because obviously not forgetting that people do go to the pharmacy and they do buy things themselves. Yeah. If they're on herbal supplements, which can be very good, but they can also be a hindrance, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is a whole other session, I think. Um, so uh, important to, to make sure that you've got those as part of your, your medications list as well. Um, the, probably the most important part of taking the medical history is not only just getting the list of medicines from the patient, but also making sure that they're actually taking them appropriately. Yeah, compliance is, is fine. Um, yeah. So compliance and concordance um, of their medications. Um, and if they're not taking them correctly, we need to kind of get to the bottom of why, which kind of moves you into sort of things like social history, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, in terms of medications that we'd be more worried about, there are specific ones that we would need to think about, um, particularly from a secondary care perspective, I think. Um, mm. Uh, more so um, in terms of making sure they're administered, so time-critical medications mm. um, such as um, Parkinson medication, um, yeah. insulins um, uh, we spoke about, um, steroids, um, warfarins um, or NOACs. Yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing I always ask about, especially if they're coming in, say, with a exacerbation of their chronic condition, so say they're, they have epilepsy and come with a seizure, um, has their medication been changed recently? That's another thing, because sometimes yeah. you, you do find, oh, they had their medication tinkered with in clinic a week ago, and now their angina is back, or their seizures are back, and that's an important step to get in yeah, the history. Yeah, absolutely, and I think at that stage, if the patient's not able to give that information, it kind of goes back to getting your collateral history. Mm. So you could then go back to the hospital notes or the GP notes and find all of that information fairly swiftly, mm. um, to then be able to make a decision on what's going on with that particular patient. Yeah. Um, so I completely agree with that too. Um, in terms of um, the previous medical uh, medicine, the ones that we need to worry about, um, again, uh, from any background, somebody presenting with a head injury, for instance, that is warfarinized or on a NOAC, um, instantly becomes, that's a red flag in your mind, isn't it? Um, because you're thinking, actually, we probably need to do a CT scan on this gentleman. Um, and that, that goes for any any particular background. It's not just ED that sees these yeah. things. Um, so, has been coming in, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think yeah. sometimes you, you do just have to be very specific sometimes with those. So say, like you said, head injury, being very clear with not just saying what medication are you on, but saying do you take something called warfarin or rivaroxaban? May yeah. I have a look at your list? You know, young lady with shortness of breath, are you on the pill? Because again, yeah. that's another demographic that will very often say, oh no, I take nothing, and yeah. they, you know they they take a pill every day. Yeah. Um, and and then of course essential for that as well is is, is our allergies. Asking the patient about allergy and exactly what that allergy is. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, for instance, if we're sharing, uh, I'm allergic to penicillin. I have no idea what happens. I think I get a rash. However, it was when I was a very small child. So I probably had a viral rash <laughs> that just happened to be there around the same time as they inappropriately gave me penicillin. So um, I think it's just being very clear. Needless to say, no one will give me penicillin now, um, <laughs> frustratingly. But um, to be very clear from the patient, so is it as simple as a, a slight rash? Um, it, was it that they had a tummy upset, which isn't actually a a, a, a reaction is it? It's a known side effect yeah. that you can get. Morphine some. makes me vomit. Well, that's Absol a side effect. That's a, that's a classic one, isn't it? A yeah. classic side effect. So when people say they're allergic to something, it's been very clear whether that is actually a side effect of a known side effect of that medication, or if actually it's a true allergy. I mean, clearly, if somebody has um, blisters appear all over their skin or they swell at the face, <laughs> stop breathing. A, yeah, we absolutely. Can, yeah. We can appropriately say that is a true allergy. Um, so yeah, uh, be very clear on on allergies but specifically what, what the reaction is um, that specific reaction but here you know we'll, we'll guide what antibiotics we give yeah. If you have a rash that comes on slowly versus full-blown anaphylaxis, we'll guide Absolutely. by antibiotics. Absolutely, and you if you look at um, your specific guidance within your trust or your working area, um, there should be some antibiotic guidance that will tell you if, if it's a relatively minor sensitivity um, that you would be able to give a cousin a cousin um, antibiotic to penicillin potentially, or if it's a known their face swells or they get blisters all over their skin promptly, then then you wouldn't be able to even even to use that particular medication. So it does guide you absolutely. And so from there we're on to the social history. This is really the habits of our patient and trying to imagine them day to day at home, isn't mm. it? And I think it's quite telling actually. People, um, by, the, by the time you get down to the social history, they're quite relaxed with you and they will start talking, talk very openly with you about these things. Yeah. Um, and um, to, to really get a clear, clear idea of, of what, what they've been doing in the past and what, what their um, occupations were previously. Mm. So for instance, you mentioned um, uh, minors earlier. Mm. Uh, so somebody who came in with a uh, shortness of breath, for instance, that had a history of 60 pack year, <laughs> who, then, um, who then also worked in the mines mm. um, for 40 years, um, is going to raise your suspicion that there is something respiratory mm. um, and potentially more sinister underlying their breathlessness. Um, this, <laughs> the, uh, the slide here actually shows um, S, um, somebody who's cutting asbestos as yes, they, they as, did many years ago. As they did, used to play with it and all sorts. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Stick it in helmets and all sorts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that would uh, raise your suspicion of something more, more sinister um, or potentially some, something more sinister in the future, I guess, as well. Yeah. So um, if the patient is asking around their, uh, their smoking history, we've already discussed. Um, and if you're going to ask around the smoking history, it's making sure that you're documenting that appropriately and correctly and um, so trying to put it in pack years if you can how do you put it into pack years <laughs> that's something to read around <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a pack year I believe is 20 a day isn't it it's is 20 yeah uh, so uh, 20 in a pack so if you smoke a pack a day for a year that is one pack year one pack year there you go 40 
40 a day for a year, that's a two pack two year. Pack, yeah. 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 10 a day is half a pack half year. Half a pack year, yeah, absolutely. But and they can only smoke them in 10s, 20s, 40s. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> if, if your patient smokes 13 a day, your, your, your maths is kind of uh, messed <laughs> up a bit. Um, but, um, and I sometimes find, a bit like with the drinking as well, patients will go, oh, well, whatever, I don't know. And they may be a little bit reticent. So I, I try and over-exaggerate a little bit. So, so oh, I don't know how much I smoke. So I say, oh, well, shall I write 60 a day then? And they go, no, it's more like 20. Like there you get your number. Whereas if you go, how much do you smoke? And more like get out one or two. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then you're not going to get your true number. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, um, and I find the same a little bit with alcohol because you know, patients, again, they don't want to be judged. Mm. And, and as much as you say, oh, I'm not judging, um, they think you are. Mm. Um, so I sometimes say things like, well, what's your favorite tipple? This is one I heard one of the ITU consultants using. It's quite good. What's your favorite tipple? Oh, I like a brandy. You know, you know. So if I bought you a bottle of brandy now, how long would that bottle of brandy last you? And that kind of, you know, sometimes mm. go, oh, months, I bet. Or, or, or yeah, about a week. Okay, they, you know, <laughs> it gives you, gives you another indication in, into their drinking, I think. Yeah, I think, to be honest, I've had patients who have come in and we've, we've got all the way to the social history. And it's only really at that point that they've, they've then disclosed um, that they're drinking heavily in the evenings or that they're drinking approximately a bottle of wine a night. And and it's only when you have that conversation of, gosh, you know, I, this isn't related today, potentially. Actually, I think this is just something we're discussing now. And this is a kind of intervention point. That is far too much alcohol. Yeah. Um, and this is the time that we need to say this is too much and, mm. and do a bit of an intervention there because this might not be a problem from them now, but it could be a potential problem from yeah. the future. Um, so I think there's a key point there that you, we are doing holistic care and this is a holistic approach to our patients because yeah. as nurses, actually, I think we're very good at that as well. But this is this is very much something where we should be able to say to somebody actually we're going to do some help promotion here too and you're drinking too heavily and we need to do something about this yeah. and we can support you mm-hmm. um, and I've never I've never come across a patient that's not wanted the help um, but also not been grateful to receive that that kind yeah. of sympathetic ear but also somebody who wants to help them and explain to them that this is going to get bad and there's a tipping point and you're mm-hmm. not at that tipping point yet but it could be soon yeah mm. uh, and as well I think you know who's at home with you what's there health like because very often you may have a patient who you patient for you is the primary carer of another patient mm, and yeah. that's that's very as you said people are getting older so you may have the the spouse of somebody at home who's very disabled and this is you you're actually looking after the primary carer mm. and that's obviously then going to affect your discussions and other things going on yeah. so who else is at home what's their health like do you live in a bungalow a flat a house do you manage the stairs how do you dress yourself do you clean yourself has anybody come in to help out if so what do they do um who does your driving your shopping and it's kind of as i said it's that 360 degree can you kind of imagine the patient in front of you what they did before they came to see you yeah absolutely um not only that but i think we're we're working in a day and age where we are the busiest we've ever been in a hospital secondary care setting but patient admissions are up and we have people sat in beds for a very long time 
And if we have that information from the very beginning, then starting the process of getting that patient home or to the appropriate care facility that is not a hospital yeah. is so much quicker mm. than being a few days down the line before they even start to get that information together. So if you're the first person seeing that patient, then to have that information yeah. ready starts that process sooner, which mm. means that that bed is potentially available earlier for the newer yeah. patient coming in. So um, it's just recognizing that there's a domino effect to everything that you're doing that mm. could make that patient stay shorter mm. um, in hospital too. So social history, I think it's very, yeah, very important. I think another point is just that people can sometimes say, well, how useful is this in the acute setting? And I do say to my students, if you've got a 60-year-old with a AAA who can climb a full flight of stairs, who runs a marathon, who does this, that, the other, versus a 60-year-old who requires a hoist to go anywhere, gets a short of breath just dressing themselves, that is very important information that your anaesthetic and surgical colleagues are going to need to know as they make a prognosis about your patient. I think about risk, mm. risk weighing up risks, mm. um, which is essentially the whole point of the history <laughs> is risk management, isn't it? Uh, okay, so then on to our family history. So, yeah, relevant family history. Um, so, um, I always just open it up to the patient and say, so, is there any, any history of any medical problems in the family? Um, often you're met with a, a no. <laughs> and then you say, so, mum and dad, are they still with us? Um, and there's, you know, there is a really nice way that you can approach that because actually sometimes they say, actually, no, your dad passed away and it's offering yours. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, and appropriately sort of providing condolence to them, whether it be last week or 20 years ago, it's still not nice for them to talk about. But it's important because actually if dad died of a heart attack when he was 40 and you're presented with a 40-year-old man, his pain, son yeah. with chest pain, yeah. then it's incredibly relevant. So, um, so family history of things like um, uh, ischemic heart disease, um, PEs, um, diabetes, uh, respiratory conditions, because if somebody um, had a parent who died from um, respiratory failure secondary to having COPD because they spoke 60 a day, mm. that child grew up in that household with 60 a day. Yeah. So it's kind of put it into context. Or the minor um, who worked all day came home and his kids jumped on the clothes that he was wearing from being in the mines. Yeah. Actually, they're still at risk. So it's taking that kind of context Absolutely. too. Um, so yeah, it's really, really important. So mum, um, dad, brothers, sisters, yeah. um, uh, relevant history. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, certain conditions like um, cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, mm. there's very strong family links, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Any um, young person who's come in with a collapse, as we you know, we're a university city here, you know, did you have any siblings who collapsed and, and all may have That's died? That's a really hard one to cover, but you do need to ask, yeah, it. do you have anyone you know, in the family that suddenly collapsed without warning, yeah. who then didn't get, get up, yeah. who, you know, who, who was poorly as a result of that mm. collapse? Um, has anyone, have you lost anyone in the family suddenly without, without any yeah. warning? Yeah. Um, and again, it's just how you ask that question nicely yeah. without frightening them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always find I have to ask this, I yeah. think, is, is, is a good frame for all of these questions, uh, especially if you're taking anything you think might be awkward yeah. so you know about social habits um, sexual history etc etc I think I have to ask this yeah. um, I think gets you out of jail on most things most reasonable patients will go that's fine yeah absolutely uh, and then finally you said this is everyone's favorite bit we're on to our systems inquiry or systems review yeah uh, basically I often, going through everything I often think of it as the underground map because everything is connected <laughs> 
Um, and, I, and it can sometimes feel a bit like looking at the underground map of London. Um, so it helps drop on basically any information the patient might not have volunteered earlier. Um, so essentially a, a top to toe um, of the patient. It's surprising what you can draw out as well that you weren't expecting them to say. Um, so I, it's, it's different for everybody. I tend to go for a top to toe approach on the patient. So um, asking them, have you had knee trips, falls or funny do's? How's your vision? Any changes to your vision? Any changes to your hearing? Are you eating and drinking okay? Any changes to the swallow? And move down the body um, and covering all the things that you might not have asked specifically. And it's quick. It doesn't have to be extensive. The only caveat to that is if you find something positive and you kind of do need to do that symptom to death, you can't just ignore it. If yeah. they tell you something that's relevant, you have to then do that symptom to death. It's kind of like, oh, geez, just as I thought I was finished. Yeah. So, yeah, so you want to ask, you know, breathing, heart problems, any um, gastrointestinal problems, uh, urinary problems, uh, neurological problems, any problems with your joints, muscles, skin problems. And then your general, any weight loss, lethargy, fatigue, yep. night sweats, etc. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and then that's our history, isn't it? So that concludes our history, which feels like a huge amount of information. But um, when, it's, when it's a normal dialogue of conversation with a patient, it moves quickly and swiftly and should flow like, say, like a normal conversation mm. Uh, mm. with somebody sat in front of you. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. That was the Take Orally Taking a History podcast. Uh, as ever, you can find the blog entry for this podcast at takeorally.com. Don't forget, you can find Take Orally on both SoundCloud and iTunes. You'll find Take Orally also on both uh, Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, major trauma, don't forget to check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.